There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 218, The Siege of Antioch. Today, as you may have noticed, we have one of our rare epic-length episodes of the History of Byzantium. The Crusader Siege of Antioch is one of those dramas that is well worth the price of admission. The price in this case is the sheer amount of information one has to take in, to get maximum value from the story. To help us out, I'll be using the old drum sound effect. That one. Not to mark the passage of time or anything specific, but simply to give us all a mental breather as the scene changes. I've also time-stamped the episode, you should be able to see it on your app in the episode description, or you can find it at the website. This will break the episode up into digestible chunks, each marked by our sound effect. I thought this might help in case your mind starts to wander, or if you need to go back and listen to a bit of the episode again. Given the slightly complicated geography of Antioch, I think that might be essential. I've put up maps and illustrations at thehistoryofbyzantium.com, and I would urge you to take time to look at them. I'm going to have to describe how the river Orontes snakes through the landscape, and how that affected the rhythm of the siege. I'm going to describe the position of the Crusaders outside and inside the city. I'm going to describe mountains and bridges and gates and ports. It really would be helpful if you could just take a glance so that it doesn't all blur into a mass of meaningless words in your mind. Thank you. It's also worth saying that this is the least involved the Byzantines have ever been in an episode of the narrative. They are there, but the starring role goes to the Crusaders. Despite their absence, this story is vital for the history of Byzantium. It was the siege of Antioch that really created crusading in the way it came to be understood, and it was Latin success in the absence of Byzantine forces that drove a wedge between the two sides and ruined Alexius's plans for the reconquest of Anatolia. Chapter 
What you're about to hear is one of those moments when history turned, when the outcome of an event really did shape the world in a significant way, and not to the advantage of the Byzantine state. So, last time, we followed the military operations that took place in the wake of the Battle of Dorylaeum. The Byzantines retook much of the west coast of Anatolia, while the Crusaders marched east across the plateau. For the Latins, it was a difficult and at times harrowing journey. They crossed both waterless steppe and treacherous mountain passes, much of which was not strictly necessary if you were simply heading for Jerusalem. But they did it all at the behest of their Byzantine guides, who assured them that this was the best way to get to Antioch. The Crusaders understood that if they were going to make their way through a hostile Syria, it would be good to have a base to work from. But why Antioch? There were many other cities in the region, and most would have been far easier to capture. The Byzantines, though, insisted Antioch must be taken. Several listeners preempted this episode asking me why Antioch was so important to Alexius. Why not ask the Crusaders to capture Iconium, or Caesarea, or Tarsus? Antioch was a long way from Constantinople. It had only been back in Roman hands for a century or so. Was the city really vital in the emperor's struggle with the Turks of Anatolia? The answer is a little complicated, but once you hear all the different parts of the equation, I think you'll agree that it had to be Antioch. The first thing to say is that Antioch's distance from the Anatolian plateau was a positive advantage rather than a disadvantage. The Romans just couldn't fight the nomads head-on anymore. Manzikert and the battles which followed were too traumatic, not just as military defeats, but as political humiliations. The Ducas clan had been rendered illegitimate by their repeated failures. So Alexius was determined to avoid direct clashes with the Turks. If the emperor was going to retake Anatolia, then it was going to be through negotiation and diplomacy and the piecemeal acquisition of key fortresses. Alexius needed to find a way to encircle the plateau, to start squeezing at its edges to put pressure on the Turks. He had taken Nicaea. The next step was to capture an eastern city to begin the encirclement. Cities on the plateau, like Iconium and Caesarea, were just too vulnerable. The Turks would surround them and starve them into submission. The Romans needed a base that was highly defensible and could be supplied by sea. The second issue was one of recruitment. The Roman army was stretched thin. It could just about defend the Balkans and hold on to the west coast cities that had just been retaken, the manpower did not yet exist to begin advancing onto the plateau. Where was the empire going to find the soldiers who would one day take on the Turks? The obvious answer was to find them where the empire had always found them, in the mountains. The Armenians and Georgians, the hard men whose lifestyle lent itself to military service. 
Most of the great Roman warriors, the Focads and the Kurkuai, were descended from this stock. And the great advantage of these men was that they were already Christians. If the Romans could capture Antioch, it would be a natural rallying point for soldiers of fortune from across the Caucasus and Taurus ranges. The obvious problem with this distant rallying point was its distance from Constantinople. So whichever eastern base was established was going to be intensely vulnerable. It would essentially be surrounded by Turkic enemies. So this new fortress had to be highly defensible. Only Antioch could answer this call. Tarsus in Cilicia was its only rival, but Tarsus was both smaller and had less sturdy defences, and though Cilicia is fenced in by mountains, there were just too many entry points for armies to reach it. Antioch could only really be attacked from one direction, and its defences, as we will see momentarily, were impressive. Two further points are also worth making. One is that Alexius's brother Isaac had been dukes of Antioch around the time of Manzikert, so I doubt Alexius ever considered another city as a potential eastern base. And the second is that Antioch's venerable history made it an easier sell to the Crusaders. Antioch's Christian community was said to have been founded by St. Peter himself. Pope Urban had sent these men to free the eastern churches from the pagans. This had aided Alexius in pointing to Nicaea and now Antioch as great Christian cities that were in desperate need of liberation. So yeah, it had to be Antioch. Before we settle down with the Crusaders outside the walls, though, we need to talk about something that took place during the long march through the mountains. This is a tale that I think is quite influential on our story today. As you know, Godfrey of Bouillon was the recognised leader of the Eastern Franks, as in those who lived either side of the Rhine River. Godfrey had travelled with his ambitious brother Baldwin. It was Baldwin alongside the Norman Tancred who had captured the cities of Cilicia while the rest of the crusade were in the mountains. Baldwin and Tancred had left Tarsus and the rest in the care of their subordinates and rejoined the crusade during its march. But Baldwin soon left them again. He took his men and headed for Edessa. Edessa, as you may recall, was a city out in the Syrian desert, not that far from Dara and Nisbis. It had been rightly ignored by Phocas and Zimisces back in the day because it was too far from the empire's mountain strongholds to be worth taking. But the resourceful George Maniakes had captured it back in 1032, and it was still in Christian hands. Its Armenian and Syrian leaders had managed to maintain their position through diplomacy, and hearing tales of the army of Franks marching through the region, they'd appealed for help. Baldwin responded, essentially taking charge of the city's defences. To cut a long story short, the ruler of Edessa was then overthrown, and Baldwin became its new lord and master. This episode has been interpreted in many different ways. Traditionally, the story is framed in terms of Baldwin creating the first crusader state the county of Edessa. 
but that designation is anachronistic. The idea of Edessa as a Latin county, or a crusader city, only comes into being once Jerusalem is taken and held. Peter Frankopan, by contrast, argues that Baldwin was acting on behalf of Alexius, taking charge of a former imperial city and waiting to be plugged into the court system. Still others argue that Bohemond had been promised Edessa and the surrounding territories, and that the Norman had given Baldwin the nod to take charge of it while he eyed up the greater prize of Antioch. We can't really reconstruct the truth. All we know is that Baldwin had seized control of Edessa and was continuing to hold it on behalf of its local Christian elite. But there are a couple of reasons why this story is so important. One will reveal itself later, but the other is that it shows the potential for the crusade to fragment, for its leading nobles to decide that it was more profitable to seize a piece of the Middle East rather than to struggle on towards Jerusalem. This realization seems to have weighed on the Crusaders as they approached Antioch. It was already late October 1097. Winter was coming. To blockade a city in winter was a very tough proposition, and the sheer size of Antioch meant that it would be impossible to fully surround it. Given these challenges, Tatikios, Alexius's representative, suggested a distant rather than a close blockade. Tatikios's advice was to split up their forces until spring. They would spend the cold months living in the fortresses they'd captured or nearby ports. They could still harass Antioch from these positions, and it would be much easier to feed the whole army if they divided into smaller groups. Next year, when supplies were plentiful, they could invest the city, and Alexius could bring reinforcements to aid them. But Raymond of Toulouse spoke up against this idea. Raymond, leader of the southern French, and by far the richest of the Latins, insisted that they must blockade the city directly, as they had done at Nicaea. There was an obvious logic to this. You definitely won't capture a city if you don't camp near it, and the Latins may have felt that putting pressure on Antioch immediately was the best way to overcome its defences. But modern scholars speculate that Raymond had other concerns, that a winter spent in separate quarters would destroy the cohesion of the whole enterprise. As we just saw, Baldwin had taken a contingent of knights to find their fortune in Edessa. The army had also left men in the cities of Cilicia, the mountains, and they hadn't struggled to find volunteers. A winter of easier living might persuade many a knight to forget about Jerusalem and opt for the mercenary life instead, while the large number of non-combatants might become disillusioned and abandon the cause. Raymond had plans to stay in the east once the pilgrimage was complete, and he realised that the sheer size of the crusade was what had brought it victory so far. So he insisted that they all stay together, and besiege Antioch immediately. The other members of the so-called Council of Princes agreed. If the crusade was really going to succeed, it needed a lot of luck along the way. And perhaps the most fortunate part of the campaign was the political fragmentation that the Latins encountered as they arrived in Syria. As we've talked about before, 
the caliphate had begun to tear itself apart back in the ninth century. It was just too vast a realm for one government to hold it all. The Seljuks had briefly put some of the pieces back together, but it was a fleeting revival. Alparslan victor at Manzikert had managed to hold the centre, but when his son Malik Shah died in 1092, things began to unravel. More than a decade of civil war would follow, with most of the action taking place in Iran, far away from the Mediterranean. The man who'd taken Antioch from Byzantium was Tutush, the brother of Malik Shah. When Tutush died, he left Syria divided between his sons. His eldest boy Ridwan held Aleppo, his youngest Dukak controlled Damascus. The two sons jealously guarded their independence, and given their inexperience, the generals who controlled other cities, like Antioch and Jerusalem, were to some extent independent of their control. Adding to the political chaos, the Fatimid Caliphate of Egypt held many of the Syrian port cities, and even some of these were de facto independent actors. If the Crusaders had arrived a decade earlier, they would have been confronted quickly by a united Islamic response. As it was, no one opposed their invasion, and the various attempts to forge a coalition against them were hampered by mutual distrust and suspicion. The man in charge at Antioch was one of Tutush's generals, Yagi Siyan. Though he was nominally subordinate to Ridwan at Aleppo, he was practically on his own as the Latins advanced towards him. He seems to have had a garrison of about 5,000 men, and began preparing for a siege in good time, stockpiling food and sending his sons out to call for help. He also had some of the native population ejected from the city. Antioch was still a majority Christian metropolis, and so Yagi Sian tried to identify those who might cause trouble and show them the door. This wasn't easy, though. Antioch had a polyglot mix of Romans, Arabs, Armenians, and Syrians. Now we come to the most complicated part of this story, the geography of Antioch itself. Let's start simple and add more layers of detail as we go. The first thing to say is that there was only really one road that an army could take to Antioch. The city was situated between two mountains, and to the south of it was the sea. So although small groups could reach the city from its port or from narrow mountain roads, an army only had one choice. The road in led from north to south, so once the Crusaders advanced down this road, they had blocked off the main route in. Any army coming to relieve the siege would have to take this same route and face the Latins in battle in order to get to the city. Now that sounds fairly positive, right? To some extent the city was easy to cut off from the outside world. But here's the difficult part. Antioch was built right up against the foothills of one of those mountains, and its defensive walls were built up into the slopes. The walls snaked up high above the lower city until they climaxed in a fortress some 300 metres above the citadel. 
So although the Crusaders could block traffic coming from the north, they couldn't actually surround the city. As I'm sure you know, when an army besieges a fortress, they camp all around it and dig trenches to protect themselves from attack. This was obviously impossible halfway up a mountain. So the Latins had to leave over half of the city's walls unguarded. This meant that the garrison of Antioch were never cut off from the outside world. Their access to it was restricted to narrow mountain paths, but that was still very valuable. Supplies and messages continued to reach them throughout the siege. The next challenge for the Crusaders was gaining access to the sea. During this period, Byzantine ships from Cyprus helped capture three neighbouring ports. Two lay either side of the two mountain ranges that hemmed in Antioch, so supplies could reach the Crusaders, but it was slow going through the passes. It was the third port that was key. This was the port that lay directly south of the city, the port of St. Simeon, named after the great stylite who was the subject of one of our Byzantine stories. This harbour was about 17 miles from the city, and so was going to be absolutely key for supplying the crusade throughout the winter. Now you might think this won't be a problem. The Westerners just needed to camp south of the city and block off this road. That way they would control access to the sea. Unfortunately, this is where the winding of the river Orontes plays a key role in our siege. And this is much clearer if you have time to look at the map, but I'll do my best to draw you a mental picture. So, looking from above, as if looking at a map, Antioch is roughly the shape of a rectangle. The long sides running north to south, the shorter sides east to west. Essentially picture the front cover of a closed book. The mountain which the city is built up against is to the east, so the right-hand side of the book. The Crusaders were therefore going to try and cover the other three sides of the book, the north, the west, and the south. So, the top and left-hand sides of our book were no problem. The Crusaders could march down to the city and camp there. The river Orontes flows just outside this part of the city. This created a pocket of land which the Crusaders could camp on, and it allowed them to access drinking water while denying it to the garrison of Antioch. Now here's where it gets tricky. Imagine the river running parallel down the left-hand side of the book. As you reach the bottom left corner, the river suddenly snakes inward and touches the walls of the city. The river then continues its path south towards the sea. Let's go over that again. The river is running parallel to the city as the Crusaders approach it, leaving a gap between the water and the city walls which the Latins can occupy. But as you reach the southwest corner of the city, the river cuts you off. It hugs that corner of the city, preventing the Crusaders from being able to encircle it. So the south side of the city, the bottom of your closed book, was cut off from the rest of the city by the arc of the river. This meant that if the Crusaders wanted to camp there, next to the southern walls, that section of the army would be completely alone, isolated from support if the garrison of the city decided to attack them. 
There was no bridge over the river that could take you to that southern side. In fact, the only bridge that crossed the Orontes in the vicinity of the city was in that bottom left-hand corner of the book. It began in the city and crossed the river onto its west bank. Let's go over that again. Stay with me. We can do this. Picture the book's front cover again. The right-hand side of the book is irrelevant to us because that's just mountain. The top of the book and the left-hand side make sense to us. There is land there that the Crusaders can camp on between the city walls and the river, which is running parallel to that left-hand side of the book. But at the bottom left-hand corner, the river turns in and touches the city in that corner. This means the Crusaders can only block the left-hand side. The only bridge in the area runs from those city gates in the bottom left corner of the book to the other side of the river. Remember, the Crusaders are camped between the river and the city walls. On the other side of the river, its west bank, was lots of land where one could graze animals or travel west or even back north. But the Crusaders couldn't reach it unless they swam across the river or used small boats. The garrison, by contrast, could simply cross the bridge to reach this west bank. Now, why does this matter? Because it's from that west bank that the road to the sea begins. One last time, I promise. Picture the front cover of the book. Picture a river running parallel to the left-hand side that then snakes in and touches the bottom left-hand corner. The Crusaders were stuck only being able to block off the top of the book and the left-hand side. The right-hand side was all mountain, the bottom of the book was cut off from the rest of the siege by the river, and therefore left open. And the land to the west of the river, or to the left of the river when looking from above, had to be left unguarded as well, because the garrison of the city could reach it from their bridge and would attack any crusader's stranded on that side, cut off from their colleagues by the river. And yet, the Crusaders had to get to that side of the river in order to travel south to the port of St. Simeon and those vital Byzantine supply ships. Having sat through that, I know some of you are thinking, OK, fine, I'll look at the damn map. But hopefully... For those of you who can't, that's given you some sense of the challenge facing the Crusaders. Although their advance had shut down the main road leading north, they were really going to struggle to maintain a truly close blockade. The entire eastern and southern sides of the city would remain open, and any attempt to cross the river and get supplies was going to be very vulnerable to attack from Antioch's bridge gate. Now you can see why Tatikios suggested a different strategy, and why the siege of Antioch is going to last for eight long, gruelling months. Just to put some figures with that description, Antioch's walls stood 20 metres high and were 2 metres thick. They stretched a full 3 miles in length and were dotted with hundreds of towers, Antioch was a huge city of about 1,500 acres. Like Constantinople, its inhabitants could grow some of their own food, using the foothills that led up into the mountains as farmland. 
Many animals lived inside, including the garrison's horses. From the descriptions we hear, it sounds like maybe up to 800 cavalry were resident in the city. The rest of the garrison were foot soldiers. Some of the cavalry were Turks who'd come from the steppe, while many others were locals, Arabs, Syrians and Armenians. Yet another advantage the garrison enjoyed was the citadel, perched high above the city. Not only was this an impregnable spot on the map, but from that vantage point, the enemy could see every move the Crusaders made and report it to those manning the walls below. Capturing Nicaea had been a real challenge. This was potentially Mission Impossible. The early stages of the siege were fairly peaceful. Yagi Sian left the newcomers alone, waiting to see how they would proceed. Meanwhile, the Franks foraged widely as they set up their camps. As we just discussed, the Crusader encampment only covered the north and west of the city. Bohemond and Tatikios camped in front of the north gate. Then the northern French covered the top left corner of the book, under Robert of Normandy, Robert of Flanders, and Stephen of Blois. Then there were two more gates on the western side of the city. Raymond of Toulouse and his southern French were next, covering one, and finally Godfrey of Bouillon and the eastern Franks covered the other, which was roughly in the centre of the city, on the western walls. So the Crusader camp was a large L-shape, covering the northwest corner of the city. Despite leaving so much of Antioch unguarded, the Council of Princes felt that cohesion was more important than coverage. This way, they wouldn't lose contact with one another. They didn't want one group to be isolated and attacked by the garrison. Unfortunately, there was little more that the Crusaders could do at this stage. They had no siege equipment with them, and the quality of timber in the area was poor. Not that an assault seemed likely to succeed, given the advantages which the defenders enjoyed. All the Latins could do was apply general pressure and hope that something inside the city would crack. This left Antioch's garrison in a position to make all the proactive moves during the first few months of the siege. Once they had assessed the Latin positions, Yagi Sian ordered daily attacks to be made on them. These came largely from three directions. One was to fire down upon Bohemond's camp from the slopes of Mount Starin, safe in the knowledge that if he fought back they could retreat up the hill and out of range. Another was to use the bridge gate to get onto the west bank of the Orontes and fire arrows at Godfrey and Raymond's camps on the other side of the river. The third method of attack was simply to target isolated groups of Latins who'd gone foraging. From the citadel, Muslim soldiers could spot when a group had moved too far from safety and then pounce. By mid-November, a council was called to brainstorm methods for combating these attacks. Priority one was to build a bridge over the river. This was achieved by lashing together all the small boats they could find and securing them to the land next to Godfrey's camp. 
Up to this point, when someone had wanted to cross the river, they had rowed slowly across in small groups, making themselves vulnerable to attack. Now at least men could hop across relatively quickly, although it was less easy for horses. Still, this enabled groups to form up quickly on the west bank of the river, which was crucial both in terms of cutting off attacks as well as reaching the port of St. Simeon. Next, the princes agreed to build a siege fort on the slopes of Mount Staurin to protect Bohemond's camp from attack. By now, some Genoese ships had put in at St. Simeon, bearing craftsmen and supplies to make this possible. Though the fort was a rough and ready construction, all that was needed was a defensible point from which arrow fire could be returned. The fort was named Malregard, and is on the map near the north gate. Finally, Bohemond himself led a contingent out to attack a fort ten miles east of Antioch. Some Turkic troops had been using it as a base from which to further harass his foraging parties. The Norman prepared an ambush and successfully slaughtered enough men to prevent the fort from being used in this way again. The siege had now entered a grim stalemate. The garrison could still hurt isolated crusaders, but little more. The Latins had cut the city off from most of its support, but could never fully close the door. Each side could do little more than bark at the other. After his successful mission, Bohemond had brought captives up to the city and beheaded them in front of their comrades. The Turks apparently did the same with local Christians thought to be too friendly with the besiegers. They even brought out the Byzantine patriarch, John the Oxite, and beat his feet with iron rods from the top of the walls. Uh, This was the same John the Oxite who gave an amazingly critical sermon about Alexius back in episode 204. He'd finally been able to leave Constantinople to take up his post in 1091, only to be imprisoned as soon as the crusade appeared on the horizon. By December, the Franks began to run out of food. As you can imagine, 35,000 people hoover up food pretty fast, and having foraged all over the region, the pickings were becoming slim. And then the weather began to turn. Stephen of Blois was still writing home to his wife, and complained that despite reports that Syria was a hot country, their winter was little different from that of northern France. Adhemar, the papal legate, also wrote home. Sensing that the siege was going to last for some time, he appealed to men from the west to come and join the crusade. He particularly targeted those who'd promised to take the cross, but had failed to fulfil their duty. Not above a little pious deception, the bishop reiterated the claim that the Levant was a land flowing with milk and honey. The next four months were a grim struggle to survive. Camped out in the open air, with only tents for protection, men shivered and huddled together. They rationed every ounce of food available and sent foraging parties ever further into the wilds to try and find sustenance. Byzantine supply ships were their lifeline, though it was hard to get consignments past the garrison, and as winter set in, ships could no longer sail as frequently. The princes met again in late December and decided to send off a major foraging expedition. 
Beaumont and Robert of Flanders would go out on the road to Aleppo with an army at their backs. Hopefully, they could load some wagons full of produce to help relieve the shortage. Everyone assembled knew the risks involved. Not only would Beaumont and Robert be isolated in enemy territory, but their absence would be noted by Antioch's garrison, who would likely attack the camps in their absence. Little did the princes know just how dangerous their mission actually was. As I mentioned earlier, as the crusaders approached Antioch, Yagisian dispatched his two sons and some other advisers to go and find help. They dispersed to the major cities of Syria to try and coordinate a relief force. As I also mentioned earlier, factional rivalries meant that the major cities of the area were reluctant to work together. Still, the call had been heard in far-off Damascus, where Dukak, son of Tutush, had raised about 10,000 men and sent them north. Neither they nor the Crusaders seemed to have been aware that the other was on its way. The Latins celebrated a meagre Christmas together before Bohemond and Robert set off on the 28th of December. Horses continued to be in short supply, but 400 knights were spared for this mission alongside an unspecified number of infantrymen, presumably a thousand or two. The army made its way out of the vicinity of Antioch and followed the Orontes River, heading south. The Latins began gathering food, and for three days saw no danger ahead of them. But as they camped near the town of Albara, they neglected to properly scout ahead, and did not notice Dukak's army pitching its own tents nearby. On the morning of the 31st of December, the two sides spotted one another. The Franks were taken completely by surprise and were in some disarray as Dukak's vanguard bore down on them. An attempt to form up and weather the storm probably would have failed since the Damascene army outnumbered them by more than two to one. So the knights decided to trust their instincts and attack. The vanguard was made up of horse archers whose own instinct was to spread out and try to encircle. Robert of Flanders took his company of knights and charged directly at them, breaking their formation and causing a retreat. Meanwhile, Bohemond held his horses in reserve, and when Robert succeeded, he ordered his own cavalry to charge headlong at the Turks, who tried to outflank them. They also broke and fled. The rest of Dukak's army were now thrown into confusion by the retreat of their front line, with units losing cohesion, some advancing, some retreating. In the chaos, Bohemond and Robert decided to flee and save themselves. It was a ruthless choice, since it left their infantry with no support. The foot soldiers had to retreat alone, and most were picked off or enslaved over the next few days as the horse archers returned to the field. Despite this, Dukak was unable to reform his army. It had lost cohesion and too many units had fled the field to allow him to continue his advance. Eventually he gave up and returned to Damascus. This was a problem that the Muslim armies encountered time and again. The forces they put together were always slightly unwilling coalitions, a thousand men from this city, a thousand from that. 
No one wanted to be there, and no one trusted anyone else much. By contrast, the Crusaders were increasingly fighting for their own survival, willing to risk madcap cavalry charges straight into the enemy line in order to drive them from the field. In many ways, this was a great victory for the Crusaders, but it didn't feel like one. The Latins had lost hundreds of men and come home empty-handed. In their absence, the garrison of Antioch, as predicted, had gone on the offensive. They had come bursting out of the bridge gate in force, which Raymond of Toulouse decided to meet in person. He led the southern French across the bridge of boats to face them. When the two sides clashed, the Turks turned tail and ran, leading the Franks to chase them. But it was a trap. More troops appeared from the bridge gate and surrounded the Latins. The Crusaders now broke and fled back to the bridge of boats. It was a chaotic scene, as those who decided to stand and fight were trampled into the ground by their own brethren. Others were hacked down or tumbled into the river. Adamar's flag-bearer was killed, and his battle standards lost, as the southern French sprinted back to safety. Though the casualties were not horrific, the morale of the crusade was at its lowest point. Adamar's flag was flown from Antioch's walls to taunt them, and the faith of many was severely tested by the ongoing deprivation and the sense that they were now losing more engagements than they were winning. As ever in sieges, hunger and disease are the biggest killers. An eyewitness claimed that one of every five men in his camp died that winter. Food became so scarce that people were eating shoots, herbs and thistles from the ground. Any animals in camp were under threat from ravenous men. Dogs, cats and rats were all eagerly thrown into the pot. And then horses and other pack animals would be targeted. Many animals were dying of starvation anyway. Feed for horses, along with everything else, was being sold at exorbitant prices. Merchants from Cilicia and Armenia were visiting the camp regularly, but having crossed a war zone to peddle their wares, they had understandably jacked up their prices. Increasingly, the princes were being begged for food in order to keep the rank and file alive. Desertions increased throughout the winter, and it wasn't just the poor who were running away. At the end of January, Bohemond's nephew Tancred caught two men trying to leave, and when he pulled the hoods off their heads, he was shocked to discover that it was Peter the Hermit, alongside another leader of the People's Crusade. Perhaps, given what we know of Peter, he shouldn't have been so surprised. Robert of Normandy, who was a bit of a playboy, also abandoned the siege. He didn't go home, but to the nearby port of Laodicea, now in Byzantine hands. There he could live a far more comfortable life. It took three stern letters to get him to return, and one commentator said witheringly that he was surprised Robert had made it this far, given how weak-willed he was. With things getting desperate, the clergy got together to address the situation. Men were beginning to doubt God's support for their endeavour. Their faith had to be restored. The clergy, predictably, blamed the bad situation on the sinful behaviour of the crusaders themselves. Pride, avarice and lust stalked the camp. All women 
were ejected from the siege, and Adamar led services, encouraging everyone to fast and pray and rid themselves of sin. Those caught stealing or fornicating were publicly punished. Though this might sound like the last thing that starving men needed, it certainly focused minds and restored a sense of purpose to some. Meanwhile, the princes encouraged groups of two or three hundred soldiers to head out on foraging missions to bring back what they could. Some groups succeeded. Some were never seen again. Even Bohemond was threatening to leave at this point, though that may have just been brinksmanship. The Normans were running out of horses and money. Bohemond was far less wealthy than some of his fellow leaders, and was anxious that if the siege dragged on, he would be unable to pay his troops any more. Tatikios again suggested that the crusade withdraw to the numerous forts and cities they had acquired until spring, but again Raymond of Toulouse would have none of it. The richest of the Latin leaders offered to compensate knights who'd lost their mounts issuing cash to worthy men in order to buy new horses. He also promised to lend his own cavalry in support of other princes' foraging parties. With these generous offers in place, everyone agreed to stay and continue their joyless blockade. Everyone, that is, except Tatikios. Alexius's representative announced that he was off to find the emperor and bring reinforcements. He promised that he would return, and even left most of his belongings behind. The 2,000-strong Byzantine contingent followed him as he sailed to Cyprus. Tatikios would never return. This incident has also been interpreted a number of different ways. As far as we can tell, Tatikios did organize a new shipment of supplies to be sent from the island, but he then made his way home, and was welcomed back by Alexius, who did not then send him back to the siege. The Latin histories record Tatikios as a traitor and a liar, which he almost certainly wasn't, but from their perspective, the fact that he didn't return was enough to confirm their worst suspicions. They were all on a mission of honour, and had sacrificed everything to take Antioch. There was no good excuse for those who abandoned them, even a direct order from the emperor. As we'll come to later, Alexius probably felt that he would be sending Tatikios to his death if he sent him back, but regardless of the reality of the situation, the fact that Antioch would fall with no Byzantine troops present was a very bad thing for the empire. Later, Byzantines recognized what an error this had been, in many ways an unavoidable error, an unseeable error, but an error nonetheless. Anna, writing decades later, tells us that Bohemond was the one who engineered Tatikios's departure. Allegedly, the Norman told the Byzantine that the other leaders were conspiring to kill him, so he fled. Sadly, the consensus of modern scholars is that Anna has made this up, or her sources did to try and paint Bohemond as the scheming villain who was plotting to take over Antioch for himself. It seems more plausible that, as the Latin histories record, Tatikios was simply hoping to break the deadlock by getting help from his master, but since no help ever came, it was easy to conclude 
that he never intended to return. By February, news arrived that another Muslim relief army was on its way. This time the threat was much closer to home. Ridwan of Aleppo, who lived just 65 miles from Antioch, had raised about 12,000 men to drive the Christians away. As with the previous force from Damascus, it wasn't the size of the enemy army that mattered. The real danger was that the Crusaders would be trapped between them and the garrison of Antioch. Even a costly victory could bring the whole enterprise to an end. The princes gathered together to decide on a plan of action. Their biggest concern was the dire shortage of horses. Only about a thousand were left in the camp, and many were skinny and malnourished. It was agreed that the army must split up in order to deal with this new threat. Bohemond, Robert of Flanders, and Stephen of Blois would ride out to stop the forces from Aleppo reaching the city. Meanwhile, Godfrey and Raymond would stay behind to face down the garrison of Antioch when they inevitably tried to take advantage of the situation. Bohemond was also elected as the official commander of the expedition, the first time that the Crusaders had bowed to necessity and chosen one amongst them to lead the others. Sounds sensible, right? Except that apparently Bohemond was leading out just 700 knights to face down 12,000 men. The rest of the infantry would remain behind to maintain the blockade. As mad as this decision sounds, it was based on the logic of battle. The 700 would attempt to use shock tactics to disable the approaching force before it could make camp, just as Bohemond and Robert had managed to do against the army from Damascus. If they failed, then they would retreat to Antioch, where the full weight of the infantry could be brought to bear on the enemy. Back at the camp, it was vital that the siege be maintained with overwhelming force. If the garrison were allowed to destroy their encampments, the whole crusade could collapse. At this point, the expedition really was being held together by faith. Not just faith in God, but faith in a common purpose. If the army was forced to retreat to Cilicia, the princes believed that most of the common folk would abandon them. The siege must continue onwards at all costs. Still, it was a big ask. The Muslim sources which begin to kick in with detail around this point confirm that Bohemond's force was utterly outnumbered. But, having learnt from his previous encounter with the enemy, the Norman was determined to make his cavalry charge as much of a surprise as possible. The 700 left under the cover of darkness on the night of the 8th of February. This was crucial to avoid the garrison of Antioch giving the Aleppans advance warning. The troops led their horses quickly up the road to the Iron Bridge. This was the nearest bridge the Crusaders could access to get to the other bank of the Orontes, about 12 miles north of their main camp. As light dawned on the morning of the 9th of February, the Franks crossed over and picked their ambush site. Near the Iron Bridge there were rolling hills and a lake, all of which helped obscure their approach. Scouts reported that Ridwan's army was marching towards the bridge and the Latins prepared for their arrival. Again, this was a mixed force, typical of the lands of the former caliphate, with horse archers out front leading the way and infantry and other troops marching in order behind them. 
The timing of the Crusader attack was key. They had to charge and drive the vanguard back towards the infantry, causing confusion. If they appeared too early, the vanguard might scatter before they could break them. If they deployed too late, the rest of the army might have time to come up and surround them. Bohemond divided the 700 up into six squadrons. Five of them now attacked the vanguard. The sixth, which included Bohemond himself, waited in reserve in order to time the final charge as best he could. Eyewitnesses described the horrendous noise as the two sides met on the road, men and horses screaming and whinnying, the clatter of collision, the sky darkening as the horse archers began unleashing volley after volley. The shock tactic had the desired effect. The vanguard was startled and dispersed. But enough of them were able to back away and keep firing to stop the crusaders from overrunning them. The knights ended up in a melee, and the infantry from the main force sprinted forward to close the gap and join the battle line. Once they did, they would overwhelm the Latins with their superior numbers. Just as the infantry arrived, though, Bohemond launched himself into the heart of them with a full-blooded cavalry charge. The Norman leader aimed his squadron at the flanks of the onrushing enemy. An eyewitness in Bohemond's company eulogised. So Bohemond, protected on all sides by the sign of the cross, charged the Turkish forces like a lion which has been starving for three days, which comes roaring out of its cave, thirsting for the blood of cattle. His attack was so fierce that the points of his banner were flying right over the heads of the Turks. The other troops, seeing Bohemond's banner carried ahead so honourably, stopped the retreat at once, and all our men in a body charged the Turks, who were amazed and took flight. Our men pursued them and massacred them right up to the Iron Bridge. Once again, Crusader resolve and determination had triumphed against the odds. Bohemond knew the terror that foot soldiers felt when heavy cavalry descended on them at speed. He had gambled everything on this last charge and had won. The Aleppans broke and fled the field. You have to remember that it only takes the front thousand or two to be broken for those behind to give up and save themselves. The road down to Antioch was only so wide. The advancing army couldn't stay in formation and let the fleeing men go around them. There was no room. These fleeing men were bashing into their colleagues, causing chaos. All the while behind them, 700 Christian knights were charging forward. So everyone turned and ran away. Better to save yourself than be trampled to death. In these situations, it takes a highly motivated force to stand and fight when all about are sprinting for safety. And that was not the kind of army that Ridwan had sent to Antioch. The Latins only chased the enemy far enough to ransack their camp, bringing home valuable supplies and horses. And meanwhile, back at Antioch, the garrison had noticed the missing knights and attacked, but the infantry had held them off. Bohemond had the heads of some dead soldiers cut off and placed on posts to demonstrate to the garrison that their allies had again failed them. As Thomas Asbridge notes, if the forces of Damascus and Aleppo had worked together, surely things would have played out differently. But such political considerations were irrelevant back in the camp. Once again, the crusade received the boost it needed to continue. Clearly, 
God was still with them, and a cult of personality was developing around Bohemond, which in the light of this extraordinary victory was clearly justified. Although winter was still biting, the fortunes of the siege seemed to improve from this point onwards. Just before the battle, an embassy arrived from the Fatimid Caliphate of Egypt. As you may recall, Alexius had organised a diplomatic mission to Cairo after Nicaea was taken. This was a crucial friendship to cultivate, because the Fatimids were the only power in the eastern Mediterranean with a fleet that could have cut the Crusaders off. But since the Shiite Fatimids were at constant odds with the Sunni Seljuks, there was little chance of that. The Fatimid ambassadors were on hand to see the Franks succeed, and stayed for a month, concluding some kind of treaty of friendship. It's not clear exactly how the two sides agreed what to do with Jerusalem, which had long been a Fatimid possession until the Seljuks took it. Perhaps some kind of protectorate was discussed, one that would shelter Christian pilgrims from persecution? Whatever was said, the embassy left on good terms, taking some Latin representatives with it. Then, on the 4th of March, another Allied fleet arrived at St. Simeon with more food, craftsmen and building supplies. The princes saw this as a key moment. Various attempts to blockade the bridge gate had failed, but this shipment could be what they needed. As we discussed earlier, the road to St. Simeon was on the west bank of the Orontes, meaning the Crusaders would be exposed to attack by the garrison who could nip across the bridge gate with impunity. Bohemond and Raymond of Toulouse went together to fetch these new supplies. They took sixty knights and several hundred foot soldiers with them. The return journey took three days as they carefully dragged the construction materials towards the city. This gave Yagi Sian more than enough time to prepare an ambush. The infantry leading the line were surrounded quickly by horse archers who mercilessly picked them off. The infantry broke and fled in every direction. Apparently 500 men were killed. Bohemond brought his knights up from the rear to drive the Turks off, and Godfrey of Bouillon rushed out of his camp to try and trap the garrison between the two lines. Fierce fighting followed around the bridge gate, but with more crusaders appearing on the scene every minute, the Turks panicked and fled for the gate. As you can imagine, many were crushed into the mud or tossed into the river as the garrison made its desperate lurch for safety. Though a far less substantial victory than the two they'd won outside the city, this battle made a much greater impression on the Latin historians, and no wonder since it was fought in full view of their camps and saw up to a thousand Turkic bodies strewn on the ground before them. Crusader losses were equally bad, but of course they had far more men to spare. For a garrison of just 5,000, this was a hugely damaging defeat and marked the last time that Yagisian could seriously threaten the besieging camps. Soon afterwards, the Crusaders began using their new equipment to build a siege fort facing the bridge gate. Again, it was a ramshackle affair. They fortified a mosque that stood opposite the bridge, but it was enough. To have archers permanently stationed there made the garrison's life much harder. 
These developments shifted morale significantly. It was now mid-March, and the breath of spring was in the air. Those that had survived the horrific winter could look forward to better days. Our chroniclers report men showing off their new horses and weapons, taken from the dead, and comment that the garrison of Antioch no longer yelled or howled from the battlements any more. In fact, some from the garrison snuck out at night and buried their dead friends in the grounds of the mosque that the crusaders were about to fortify. When the Latins realised what had happened, they dug up the bodies to spite the garrison. The dangerous task of manning the new siege fort went to Raymond of Toulouse and his southern French, possibly because Raymond wanted to restore his reputation as a man of arms. The Count had been ill on many occasions during the crusade, which led him to miss certain engagements, Perfectly understandable for a man in his fifties, but people had begun to talk. A slight Crassus Pompey rivalry was developing between Bohemond and Raymond, one the great general, the other the great paymaster, and no one wants to be seen as just the latter. The new fort was named La Marie, French for the Blessed Mary. As expected, Yagisian immediately launched attacks on the fort, but none succeeded. The Blessed Mary did its job, which was to hold out long enough for reinforcements to come to its aid. Excited by this success, the Crusaders looked to tighten the noose further. They occupied an abandoned monastery in the hills to the south of the city. Tancred, Bohemond's nephew, agreed to garrison it, for a price. Though this didn't stop the Turks from using the south gate of the city, it put them in much greater danger when they did. Antioch was now more or less surrounded. Only the gates into the mountains were free of Franks. A trickle of supplies still reached the garrison, but larger caravans were now eagerly intercepted by the Crusaders. By April... Supplies were appearing again from Cyprus, Cilicia, and from Baldwin at Edessa. The leaner, meaner Western army was now in much better shape, and the Muslims were the ones suffering. Yet still, little changed about the daily realities of the siege. The Latins were still living in tents and filth. The garrison still manned the walls. What had changed was the mentality of Antioch's soldiers. With the siege entering its seventh month, some amongst them were looking to get out, to save their own skin and damn the rest. In late May, one of the tower commanders offered to surrender his position to the Crusaders. A few knights entered the city to receive this submission, but the Latins were killed when they arrived. Their companions assumed that the whole thing had been a trap, but it's entirely possible that the offer was sincere, but that Yagi Sian had discovered the treachery and acted swiftly. Around the same time, the Turkic general had several crusader prisoners butchered in full view of their countrymen. Scholars speculate that Sian was trying to inflame crusader passions in order to make it clear to his own men that if the Latins got inside the city, there would be no mercy. If you think you can make a deal that will save your family, think again.
At that same moment, Alexius Komnenos, emperor of the Romans, was setting foot on the Anatolian plateau for the first time in 20 years. The Vasilevs led out his army from Nicaea that spring to mop up the few Turkic garrisons that had remained in the vicinity. They then marched along the same path the Crusaders had, towards Dorylaeum, and then south towards Antioch in Pisidia. As they went, they sacked Turkic forts and took prisoners. The emperor was keen for news from the east. The last reports he'd heard weren't encouraging, but he held out hope that the Crusaders had found a way to break through. Back in Syria, Bohemond now made a suggestion to the Council of Princes that whichever of them was the first to break into the city should be named its ruler. This was not quite as left-field a suggestion as it might sound. The right of conquest, a sort of I-was-here-first rule, was common in the West, and Bohemond's argument was that most of the knights, like himself, had no money left, and so... If one of them were to seize the city, he should be rewarded with its governorship in order to make back his fortune. The rest of the princes had two obvious objections. One, they had all sacrificed plenty to take the city. They weren't keen on just handing it over to Bohemond. And two, they had all sworn an oath to give Antioch back to Alexius. Doubtless Bohemond and others began pointing out that no Byzantine representative was on hand, and that perhaps the emperor had forfeited his claims, uh, but for now he let it go. So what was going on here? Bohemond was a smart man. Long before now he'd sent his men all around the walls of the city to say a friendly hello to the captains guarding the towers. Eventually, they'd found one who spoke Greek. We have half a dozen different reports on who this man was. Most likely he was an Armenian who'd converted to Islam and now served in the garrison. The name we're given by some sources is Firuz. With the siege dragging on and on, Firuz had indicated to the Normans that he'd be willing to let them into his tower in exchange for a hefty bribe. Firuz's tower was on the slopes of Mount Silpius, somewhere between the southern gate and the citadel, not far from where John Chrysostom once spent years alone in another of our Byzantine stories. It was a nice, isolated spot, well away from the Crusader camps. Bohemond continued to cultivate this relationship, waiting for the right moment to strike. In a wider sense, of course, the question is more... Why was Bohemond trying to gain control of the city for himself rather than preparing to hand it over to Byzantium? There is a healthy literature on this topic. And as with Baldwin's acquisition of Edessa, it's generally written about simply in terms of personal gain. Bohemond was a man searching for a new lordship. Antioch was a great prize. Why not seize it and create a kingdom of his own? And while naked ambition is clear to see, I still don't think that's the full explanation. The key thing to remember in all this is that Jerusalem hasn't fallen yet. None of these men know what the ultimate fate of the crusade is going to be. Once Jerusalem is taken and held, Bohemond and Baldwin will proudly style themselves as Christian princes on a holy mission. 
But imagine a different world. Imagine that Jerusalem doesn't fall, and Raymond and Godfrey and the rest are killed or enslaved. Imagine a Muslim counterattack, or a revival in the power of Baghdad. I'm pretty sure that under those circumstances, both Baldwin and Bohemond would be crying out to Alexius, saying, We're only holding these cities on your behalf. Send us help. Put us on the payroll. We'll do whatever it takes. So yes, Bohemond was angling to be the master of Antioch, a plan that was much easier to put in place now that Tatikios was gone. But I doubt Bohemond was closing the door on the Byzantines entirely. I just think he wanted to be master of the city to improve his bargaining position. We saw this with various Norman captains in Anatolia. None were above manipulating the empire in order to get a better deal for themselves. So while Bohemond worked on his plan and Alexius reacquainted himself with the plateau, Latin scouts reported that an enemy army was on the move in Syria. One of Yagisian's sons had gone far and wide, begging every emir with an army to come to his father's aid. His words had finally reached the ears of a worthy commander, Kerboga of Mosul. Mosul, as you probably know, is in northern Iraq, about 500 miles from Antioch. Kerboga was acting, in theory, as an agent of Baghdad. And so when he responded to the call for help, he marched slowly towards Antioch, demanding that subordinate cities send troops to help him kick the Christians out. Troops from Damascus, Haran, Samosata, Horns, Mardin, and from the Arab tribes who patrolled the desert all responded. But this was no joyous jihad. Many of the sub-commanders were suspicious of Kerbogar believing that this campaign was less about the defence of Islam and more about the aggrandizement of Kerboga, which seems to have been the case. In the chaotic world of civil war that was playing out in the Seljuk realm, Kerboga was making a power grab. Once he controlled both Antioch and Mosul, he would be the most powerful man in the region. Regardless of his exact motives, Kerboga got the men he needed in order to crush the crusade. His army is described as massive by all the available sources, presumably something in the region of 40,000, which in contemporary terms was an enormous force. The Crusaders were probably down to less than 30,000 souls at this point, and plenty of those were non-combatants. By the 29th of May, the Prince's Council was given the bad news. The enemy army was huge and would be outside the city within the week it was quickly agreed that an attempt to drive this force away was likely to fail. It was also agreed not to tell the rank and file about what was on the way, for fear that many would desert. The only course of action that seemed sensible was to make a concerted attempt to storm the walls. If they could get inside the city before Kerberger arrived, then they might have a chance. Bohemond piped up at this moment to reiterate his offer. If I can get us into the city, will you let me govern it? Since the situation was desperate, the others agreed, on the proviso that if Alexius came to their aid, they would honour their promises and hand the city over to him. With the deal done, Bohemond sent word to Firoz that it was time to put their plan into action. Apparently the captain sent his son to the Normans as proof of his good intentions. 
The attack was agreed for the night of the 2nd of June. A large group of knights and infantrymen made a stagey departure from camp that afternoon, looking like they were off to forage or scout. The hope was to lull the garrison into a false sense of security. Under cover of darkness, Firuz's men would lead them along the slopes to their commander's position. On the other side of the city, the rest of the crusaders waited, fully armed in the darkness. The camp was tense. Rumours now swirled about an approaching army, and of high-profile desertions. Stephen of Blois, whose cheery letters home are one of our primary sources, had abandoned the crusade. After attending the council meeting a few days earlier, Stephen had complained of being ill. He and his companions had then left the camp and made their way to a nearby port where they were waiting for a ship to take them home. It was quite the shameful act, if entirely understandable. Around 3am in the morning, Bohemond was in position. A couple of hundred men were with him, while the rest continued on up the hill, under the command of Godfrey of Bouillon and Robert of Flanders. Once Bohemond was in the city, they were going to assault the citadel. One of our historians was there with Bohemond, and describes how they huddled in the dark until the lanterns of the night watch went past and disappeared into the distance. Then they made a hesitant call up to the silent tower, and were immensely relieved when Firuz responded. The captain lowered a thick rope to which the Latins attached an oxenhide ladder. Sixty men then began to clamber up as quietly as they could. Our eyewitness says they were terrified, either that this was a trap, or that a sudden noise could wake the city and bring down the garrison upon them. As men became eager to join the climb, there was some jostling, and a few men tumbled to the ground, injuring themselves and making a racket. Everyone went silent, and listened frantically for the sound of guards being roused. But none came. God had blown up a strong wind that night, our chronicler tells us. The ladder was re-secured, and Bohemond joined his men at the top of the walls. Now the soldiers spread out, killing the guards in the neighbouring towers as stealthily as they could. In the darkness, it was difficult to know what was happening, and amongst the dead was Firuz's brother, which must have been awkward to say the least. The troops who were still outside now broke down a postern gate and entered the city. With everyone inside, silence was abandoned. Bugles were sounded, the signal to Godfrey and Robert that they could attack the citadel. Then Bohemond's men began making as much noise as possible, screaming and shouting and banging their weapons, hoping to cause confusion and chaos in the city. They succeeded. After so many months of sleepless nights, the people of Antioch responded with screams and cries of their own at the thought that the enemy had finally broken in. Bohemond led his men to the highest tower he could reach on Mount Silpius and raised his blood-red banner above the battlements. His goal was to make it clear that the city was his, but the sight of a Christian flag flying above them also caused terror in the streets below. Many assumed that the crusaders were minutes away from slaughtering them all. In reality, Godfrey and Robert failed in their attempts to take the citadel. 
and Bohemond's 200 men could easily have been overwhelmed. But instead, panic spread. Some local Christians opened the gates to the crusader camps, begging for their lives. Big mistake. The entire Latin army now swept into the city. After eight months of suffering and frustration, the soldiers hacked at anything that moved. In the morning gloom, they made no distinction between man and woman, adult and child, Christian or Muslim. What resistance there was was quickly overwhelmed. Yagi Sian fled the city with his bodyguard. It was all over by mid-morning. The crusader camps had emptied, and the Christians began ransacking houses looking for food and valuables. One historian commented, All the streets of the city on every side were full of bodies, so that no one could endure to be there because of the stench, nor could anyone walk along the narrow paths, except over the corpses of the dead. This was the slaughter that Alexius had tried to prevent back at Nicaea. Yagisian fled into the mountains to try and avoid the Franks, but unfortunately he ran into some locals who knew what price his head would fetch back in the city. The crusaders now began to take stock of their achievement. Though there was some cause for celebration, those of a more sober disposition could see that their situation had not radically improved. Antioch had been drained of its resources. There was little in the way of stocks left, and they would soon be surrounded by a much larger enemy. Worse still was the failure to capture the citadel. Various members of the city's garrison had fled up the hill to safety, and the impregnable fortress remained in Muslim hands. Essentially, the crusaders were not safe behind the walls. The enemy controlled a portal into their midst, and from their high perch above the streets, the garrison could see their enemies' every move. The failure to capture the citadel also foiled Bohemond's plans to seize control. Though his men still held many key towers, Raymond of Toulouse had seized the bridge gate and the city's main palace nearby. The next day, the 4th of June, Kerberger's army began to appear before the city. Never had a phrase involving frying pans and fires been more appropriate. The Crusaders were scared and exhausted. Some were sleeping in a warm bed for the first time in a year, but it brought them little comfort as hordes of Muslim troops began to line up outside the walls. Thoughts of riding out to attack the new arrivals were hindered by an acute lack of horses. Just a couple of hundred remained in good condition, and though twice as many had been captured with the fall of the city, these mounts were unused to their new master's style of war. All the Latins could do was take up defensive positions on the walls and wait to see what the enemy would do. Kerberger decided not to camp in front of the city. Rather than risk fighting in the cramped spaces around the gates, the governor of Mosul made his headquarters north of the Iron Bridge, around the area where Bohemond had ambushed the Aleppans. This allowed him to maintain control of his coalition force and made his supply lines shorter. 
He did send several units forward, though. The Crusaders had abandoned their supporting fortresses, except for La Marie. The fort opposite the bridge gate was the only thing protecting their route to St. Simeon and the supplies coming from Cyprus. Five hundred men bravely resisted for three days, but eventually they concluded that their position was hopeless. They set the fort alight and retreated through the bridge gate under cover of darkness. With the walls closing in, the Crusaders sent out urgent messages to Alexius asking for help. Stephen of Blois, who had been resting at a nearby port for the past week, heard reports about Kerberger's army and promptly set sail for home. Having been appraised of the situation, Kerberger sent a few more units to camp outside the walls to keep the Crusaders hemmed in. But he didn't attempt a full blockade. Instead, he decided to focus on the citadel. He dispatched some of his best troops to camp up in the mountains and prepare for an attack. By the 10th of June, they were ready to launch themselves down the hill into Antioch itself. The one advantage the Crusaders had was that the slopes down into the city were dangerous. Only one secure path was available, and Bohemond's men controlled the towers nearest to it. This was only a slither of comfort, though, as enemy soldiers began shooting at them from high above, and then launched waves of foot soldiers down the path from the citadel. At the same time, the troops camped outside the walls attempted to seize various towers near the north gate. The crusaders were now stretched to their limit. Bohemond and the two Roberts prepared to face down those coming from the citadel, while Godfrey desperately manned the walls around the north gate, and Raymond's men covered the bridge gate. What followed briefly reached the horrors of 20th century battle. Scholars I've read compare it to both trench warfare and Stalingrad. Because Kerberger had so many men, the attacks from the citadel didn't stop from dawn until dusk. Men fired arrows down into the foothills, where the Latins had to set up some kind of temporary barricade to shield themselves. Meanwhile, foot soldiers came running down the path, swords drawn, to try and break the crusader line. This was a vicious hand-to-hand fighting that went on for hour after hour. Between the narrow path and the limitations of the citadel as an entry point, Kerberger's men couldn't overwhelm the crusaders all at once, but wave after wave kept appearing, ready to throw themselves at the westerners, confident that the next attack would break through. The Latins lined up at the foot of the slopes, cutting, stabbing and pushing the Muslim troops back or down into the dirt. Each time the crusaders found a way to kill or drive off a wave of attack, a new one would begin. Men were dropping from exhaustion, while others had to sprint back and forth through the streets to see if Godfrey or Raymond could spare any more men to come and replace those who could no longer fight. Bohemond was nearly killed and had to be dragged away. Only nightfall stopped the attack, and then the exhausted crusaders were woken at dawn by a new wave beginning. Hour after terrible hour the fighting continued without pause. One eyewitness said, A man with food had no time to eat, and a man with water no time to drink. As Thomas Asbridge says, the sheer brutal intensity of this struggle sent some crusaders over the edge. For those who'd been on the front line for a few hours, the temptation to flee became overwhelming. They couldn't hold out forever. 
Surely it was just a matter of days before they'd all be slaughtered. Men began deserting in droves. They'd wait until nightfall and then lower ropes over the walls, climb down and make a run for it. Several high-ranking knights fled, including Bohemond's brother-in-law. So many escaped the city during this period that a nickname was coined for them, Rope Dancers. By the 11th of June, rumours were swirling that the princes themselves would soon desert. Bishop Adamar asked that the gates be locked and that the princes all swear public oaths that they would not abandon the siege. By the fourth day of hand-to-hand combat, the wounded Bohemond was told that men were hiding in their homes to avoid the struggle. He was so incensed that he set fire to some buildings to smoke them out. The fire nearly got out of control before the civilians put it out. Our historians report that at the height of this stress, many men began to report religious dreams or saw omens in the sky. These portents signalled the end of the citadel attack. On the 14th of June, Kerberger redeployed his men. From his perspective, he was sending wave after wave into the city, and few were coming back. He was also struggling to keep the army camp outside the citadel fed and watered. Had he kept going, he might well have broken the shattered crusaders, but understandably, he decided to pull out and starve them into submission instead. The general now sent more of his men to blockade the city, taking up roughly the same positions that the crusaders had occupied just ten days earlier. By strengthening the blockade, Kerberger was able to cut off almost all access to the outside world. The crusaders could no longer reach the harbour, nor risk grazing their animals on the slopes for too long. Within days, men were once again dying of starvation. If the Latins thought they had seen the worst that warfare had to offer, this new phase of the siege was eye-opening. Antioch's storehouses were quickly emptied. Men began to beg for food from their social superiors. Unguarded animals were butchered on the spot. Basic foodstuffs could be sold for dozens of coins. Men began to turn to leaves, seeds and animal skin, desperate to drain whatever nutrients they could from these dregs. The most shocking act of all was to actually desert to the enemy. Not a dash for home, but a betrayal of your own faith in exchange for a warm meal and the promise of more. It was in this atmosphere of doom that a miracle took place. The story goes that a peasant from Provence named Peter Bartholomew claimed that he'd been visited by St. Andrew in a dream. The saint had told him to look for the holy lance, the spear that pierced Jesus' side during the crucifixion. The lance was in Antioch, buried under the church of St. Peter. If it was wielded by one of the crusaders, they would be victorious in battle. Digging began, a shard of metal was found, and much rejoicing followed. There was plenty of scepticism, too, particularly from those who'd seen a holy lance in the relic collection at Constantinople. If this was the History of the Crusades podcast, then I'd talk a lot more about this and discuss how much of it was 
created in hindsight, but for our purposes, I think it's adequate just to let you know that this incident did happen and that the clergy took this opportunity to again focus the minds of their charges on their religious duties. In some crusader narratives, the army marches out immediately to meet the enemy, inspired by the discovery of this relic, but the reality is more prosaic. Two weeks passed before the crusaders reluctantly agreed that it was time to fight. In the meantime, an embassy visited Kerberger's camp. Leading the delegation was the articulate Peter the Hermit, pressed once more into service. The Latin histories claim he was there to taunt the Atabeg of Mosul, demanding he convert to Christianity or be destroyed. In reality, it seems most likely that Peter was there to negotiate surrender. If there were any circumstances under which Kerberger would let the Latins leave with their lives, then it had to be explored. The general wasn't interested. He was here to destroy a Christian army, not to save lives. Peter returned to the camp empty-handed. The princes got together and agreed that they had only one option left, to march out of the city in full force and to fight against the odds one last time. Back out on the Anatolian plateau, Alexius had reached the vicinity of Antioch in Pisidia by the 20th of June. He was met there by John Ducas, who had led troops up from Smyrna to discuss the situation. Though western Anatolia was now firmly in his hands, the plateau remained a dangerous place to be. Yes, the Romans had destroyed various bases that the Turks had used in this region, but Alexius's scouts told him that Kilij Arslan and his riders still controlled all the highways ahead. To maintain anything but a token presence here was going to be too risky. While the emperor was encamped there, a group of crusaders reached him. It was Stephen of Blois and his companions. They had sailed to Italia and then made their way inland when they'd heard that Alexius was nearby. Stephen was in a tricky position. He needed Alexius's generosity in order to get his friends back to Constantinople and beyond. But it looked an awful lot like they'd just abandoned the cause they'd sworn to the emperor's face to uphold. So when the Vasilevs asked them for details of the siege, they described the grimmest scene imaginable. A scene from which the only reasonable course of action was escape. And then, of course, they'd come rushing to warn their master not to fall into the same trap. To be fair to them, they hardly needed to exaggerate. The Crusaders were facing a far superior enemy and had run out of food. Stephen advised Alexius in no uncertain terms to head home and not to advance across the plateau. This is another encounter that is sometimes presented as a great tragedy in Crusader narratives, as if Alexius was planning to ride to the rescue and Stephen persuaded him not to. But this is very unlikely. Stephen's news was already ten days old. Alexius would have had to order a forced march right through Turkic territory, just in the hopes that the Crusaders could hold out a little longer. 
In his younger days, Komnenos had rushed rashly into battle and suffered the consequences. But even a young Alexius would have thought twice about this scenario. The plateau was still Kilij Arslan's domain. To cross it at any time would have presented the sultan with a tempting opportunity to attack. And even if the Romans had made it to Cilicia, what would they do if the crusade had been crushed in the meantime? The journey home would have been even more dangerous than the way out. The only scenario, really, that would have seen Alexius march to Antioch was one in which the crusaders had already taken the city and could offer some support to the Byzantine army as they made their way towards them. Alexius was not on a sacred mission to liberate Jerusalem. He was a head of state, and he knew better than most that his death would bring only chaos and more suffering. Komnenos was sad to hear that the Latin mission had failed, and his ships would be waiting in Cilicia to ferry any survivors home. But for now, the emperor gave the order to turn back. He also instructed the local Byzantine population to go with them. He couldn't defend them this far onto the plateau, and he wanted them to replenish settlements closer to home. The Byzantines kept a couple of inaccessible forts on the plateau as watchposts, but otherwise they abandoned its heights for the coastland below. The frontier between highland and lowland would, for the time being, be the dividing line between Turk and Byzantine. It's doubtful that anyone back at Antioch knew about Alexius's decision before the final battle, but the absence of any Byzantine troops in the Crusaders' hour of need was noted. The princes now made their final arrangements. In the preceding two weeks, they had built a small defensive wall along the path from the citadel to the city. This was to be manned by Raymond of Toulouse, with just 200 men while the rest of the army would march out of the city and attempt the impossible. The Latins were completely outnumbered, possibly two to one. They also had very few horses, so few that there was little point in having a separate cavalry division at this point. They were now a mass infantry army, starving and exhausted, who had to go out and face down fresh professional troops, including some step archers. Though the situation was desperate, the Crusaders did have a few things going for them. For one, their infantry were now battle-hardened and disciplined. Many of them were knights who just no longer had a horse, so they were unlikely to flee from the enemy and were capable of complicated battlefield manoeuvres. They were also highly motivated. While many an army under this level of stress would disintegrate, the Crusade just kept getting tougher. Those who wanted to flee had largely fled. Those without the constitution to survive had died. Those left were the toughest, the most determined, united by a common purpose to fight for their lives or to die in the service of their god. Once again, Bohemond was elected as commander-in-chief for the coming struggle. His strategy was simple to get out of the city as quickly as possible, 
He needed the army to form up on the west bank of the river before the enemy could surround them. And then they would assault the first units they met with vigour in the hopes that they would rout and cause panic. It was the same plan he'd used against the army from Aleppo, but on a much larger scale and without much in the way of cavalry to do the charging. If the plan failed, then there was nothing left to do. Retreating to the city would just delay the inevitable. In the days before the battle, the Crusaders let their horses consume all the feed that was left in the city. There was no point in rationing any more. At first light, on the 28th of June, the Crusaders massed at the bridge gate. There was no attempt to conceal their plans. They knew that the garrison of the citadel would have informed Kerberger of their movements long before they were out in the field. As soon as the gates opened, everything happened fast. The first part of the plan was achieved with some success. Archers raced out of the bridge gate and kept the nearest besiegers at bay. Then the infantry began marching out as fast as they could while maintaining battle order. The army was divided into four divisions, each with barely 30 horses between them. The northern French under the two Roberts, Godfrey with the eastern Franks, and Bishop Adamar leading the southerners. As usual, Bohemond led the final group, who would hold back in reserve, waiting for the decisive moment to strike. Once out into the fields west of the river, the infantry had to deploy in a line, each division rushing to get to the left of the previous one to cover their flanks. Kerberger had been warned hours before about this deployment, but was happy to make his way slowly to the battlefield. He had the numbers. Let the Christians all come out of the city. That way the battle will be decisive, and they won't have a chance to hide behind the walls again. This delay was crucial to what followed. Part of why the initial crusader blockade of Antioch was so inadequate was the desire to keep the army together so that they wouldn't lose cohesion and be picked off one by one. This careful strategy had paid off in the long run, something that Kerberger did not consider. His main force was camped miles away from the units that were actually blockading the city. So now, with the crusaders out in the field, Muslim troops came rushing from every direction to attack them with no plan and no coordination. Some had to cross the river in their boats, others were already stationed in the vicinity. This chaotic deployment played into the hands of the Latins, who pushed forward as one mass force. The Westerners rushed to engage with the enemy as quickly as possible. Those crossing the river from their encampments were met by the northern French, who ferociously attacked them, pushing them back. Godfrey's men were in the centre, and the southern French were the furthest from the river. It was here that steppe archers were wheeling away, peppering Adamar's men with volley after volley. Taking heavy casualties, the brave southerners sprinted towards them, determined to close the gap and force them to fight hand to hand. The crusaders were pushing north, exposing their backs to the troops who patrolled the road south. They now advanced, and Bohemond had to deploy a special detachment to drive them off. Again suffering great losses, they succeeded in scaring the Muslim troops away with an unyielding line of mailed knights hacking away at them and advancing at speed. Even without a cavalry force, the ferocity of the Franks broke their enemies. One by one, each of these units turned and ran from the Latin advance. Once again, 
Bohemond had got his tactics spot on. Kerberger had only just got the rest of his army into marching formation and was approaching the battlefield. There was only so much land between the mountains and the river, enough for an army marching one way, but not both. The routed soldiers now charged towards Kerberger's lines, refusing to stop, as routing men are wont to do. The chaos of men and horses rushing into one another caused panic. The crusaders were still advancing. Tangled up and losing their cohesion, Kerberger's main force began to break apart. Nobody wanted to be out of position when the Latins arrived, so there was nothing for it but to throw down your weapons and run. In exasperation, Kerberger watched as his huge army disintegrated around him. They did not have the motivation of the Crusaders. Many had been loaned to Kerberger and were more than happy to abandon the general. His own bodyguards soon grabbed him by the shoulders and dragged him away. All his plans destroyed by the onrushing Christian army. It was a barely credible victory. One Muslim chronicler simply conceded, The Franks, though they were in the extremity of weakness, advanced in battle order against the armies of Islam, which were at the height of their strength and numbers. And they broke the ranks of the Muslims and scattered their multitudes. The ecstatic crusaders swarmed forwards and stormed Kerberger's camp, capturing livestock, clothes, gold and silver. No clearer sign of God's support could be forthcoming than to have woken trembling with fear and hunger, only to go to sleep with a full belly, clutching a shiny trophy. By the end of the day, the garrison of the citadel had abandoned its position. Some fled, some surrendered. Antioch was now securely in Christian hands. In his book, God's War, historian Christopher Tyerman says, The siege of Antioch provided the 12th century with its Trojan War, famed in verse, song and prose, commemorated in stone and glass, the central episode of trial and heroism in epic and romantic recounting of the First Crusade. For once, legend was justified. The siege of Antioch made the crusade a crusade. As you know, that word didn't exist yet. This was just a journey or a pilgrimage. The concept of a crusade was being forged by this adventure. Those who survived the ordeal on the Orontes were in little doubt that God had a hand in their victory. How else could one explain their astonishing story? Time and again they had faced overwhelming odds. Time and again they had triumphed. After the battle, not only did the Holy Lance gain wide acceptance as a source of divine inspiration, but other miraculous interventions were reported. One eyewitness said he'd seen St. George and St. Demetrius riding with them onto the field of battle. For the Latins, victory at Antioch not only confirmed that this truly was a holy mission, it also freed them from Byzantium. 
conveniently ignoring the supplies that had poured in from Cyprus and other imperial ports, the Western histories generally agreed that the emperor had failed them. He had not come to their aid. His representative had abandoned them. Why should the city be handed over? Surely Alexius had failed to live up to his side of the bargain. Though this was not a unanimous opinion, nor was it reached by everyone immediately, in retrospect, this was the moment when the two sides split in a way that would never be fully repaired. Once the Crusaders took Jerusalem with absolutely no Byzantine help and returned home as conquering heroes, it became even easier to write the Byzantines out of the story. As unfair as this was, it's not hard to understand the Latin perspective. They had crossed the plateau. Why couldn't Alexius? They had climbed mountains and eaten dirt to capture this city for him. He never showed up. Where were the gifts and the warm words now? For those who'd buried their nearest and dearest in the Syrian soil, it was tempting to look back in anger at the pompous Byzantines who'd stayed home with their finery. The key to most of this is, of course, Bohemond. Eventually the Norman would take charge of Antioch, and his family would refuse to hand it over to Alexius. As I said earlier, his tune may have changed if things at Jerusalem had gone another way, but for now he and Tancred knew that denying the city to the Romans was the best way of extracting maximum value from their efforts. Because without Antioch, Alexius's strategy of encircling the plateau was lost. The siege of Antioch is another turning point in Roman history, one that was only clear with hindsight, but a turning point nonetheless. If Byzantium had reclaimed the city and held it, then the history of the next century and beyond might have been quite different. The Turks of the plateau would have been worried, and the Crusader states, had they formed in the same way, would have been far friendlier to Byzantium by necessity than they would in reality be. But that's not what happened. Antioch is in Frankish hands now, and Alexius is still determined to wrench it from them. That is where our story is going next. This is the history of Byzantium, after all. In terms of narrative episodes, there was a shocking lack of Byzantines in this story. My point being that there is no good reason why we should follow the Crusaders as they head to Jerusalem. Those are events outside the purview of the Byzantine state. Anna, for example, deals with them in one paragraph. However, it would feel like a shame to leave Godfrey and Raymond hanging, so as a bonus episode I will take our new friends out for one last spin as they march south towards destiny. That episode will be delivered automatically to those of you with subscriptions or who get the bonus episodes on Patreon, or you can buy it for $7 at thehistoryofbyzantium.com. I will release an announcement to let you know when it's available. Then it will be back to Constantinople to see how the Komnenos regime intended to approach this disappointment. It'll also be time for an update on non-Crusade-related matters. 
While you wait for what should be another long show, you can hear me being interviewed on the Property Nomads podcast. This is quite a different interview from the ones I normally do. It was much more about podcasting than about Byzantium. I talk all about the business of podcasting, how I've been able to monetize what I do and how the process of advertising works, as well as talking about the tours to Istanbul. If that sounds like something you'd like to hear more about, then check out the Property Nomads podcast wherever you get your shows or visit tpnpodcast.com. And if you're interested in the business of property generally, then uh, check out some of their other episodes and some of the products they produce to help people who want to invest. <laughs>